I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to go through 52 verses today. So I'm not going to read the text first. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll start walking through the text together. So let's pray. Father, we come before your throne this morning asking that you would do a work in our hearts. As we walk with you through this, help us, Lord, to understand. Help us to be open to you. Help us to receive the spirit that we need to move ahead as individuals and as a church. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your joy so we might love you and live for you. And in this day we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past week we survived another season of going through the process of a federal election in Canada. And I say survived in that it seems that the process of voting for leaders has become more like a war than an election. Even the media took notice of that this time, with a number of them stated that for the the polite Canadians, the latest federal election campaign turned out to be pretty nasty. That's the word they used, nasty. With potential leaders on every level focusing on inflicting, inflicting maximum damage on their rivals rather than humbly promoting their own character and agenda and how they can serve their constituents. One could say that politicians in our day have forgotten that they are in the business of leadership, not assassination. When we don't know what our business is, we will not accomplish our intended purpose. History tells us that Telegraph companies thought they were in the telegraph business. And so in 1980, excuse me, 19, so in 1886, they had an opportunity to buy all of the telephone patents for $40,000. But they didn't. And they ultimately went out of business because their business was communications. But they thought it was telegraph. So what's the main business of the church? Some would say it's to take care of its members in that we are to grow in our faith and in fellowship and care for one another and provide guidance and comfort as we go through the transitions and struggles of life. And no doubt these are functions of the church, but none of these is the main business of the church. The truth be told, the truth, the church is always facing a danger, a danger of slipping into a self-focused maintenance mentality, focusing on us rather than what we're called to do. Um, The business of the church is different. Pastor Erwin McManus once said, we somehow think that the church is here for us. We forget that we are here for the world instead. John Piper declares, the book of Acts is a constant indictment of mere maintenance Christianity 
It's a constant goad and encouragement and stimulation to fan the flame of Advent that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But even then, he said, we forget that the main goal of evangelism and missions is not so much about reaching the lost, but to glorify God. Because the glory of God is the supreme goal of all of history and all of our lives. And Ephesians 1, 2 declares that Jesus came to save sinners to the praise of the glory of his grace. In our text in Acts 13 today, we will see that the main business of the church is to obey the calling of the Holy Spirit by promoting the glory of God by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ out in our community and among all the nations. In our mission statement, that we seek to passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people fits that really well. What we also see in Acts 13, which we have also experienced, is when the church does not focus on the main business of the church, the church will experience conflict and opposition from within and without. And Jesus promised that that would happen to us. He said in Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring not peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against father, and daughter against mother, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The Word of God tells us that when we take a stand for Jesus Christ, when we share the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will encounter, we will encounter opposition. We will experience conflict. The gospel is the good news, but it's also the good news that divides. The 13th chapter of Acts is a turning point in, in history because it marks the beginning of the third phase of the Great Commission. In the opening chapter of Acts, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Everything Jesus told them happens between Acts chapter 1 in Acts chapter 13. And so as we enter into 13, we are at the beginning phase of the to the end of the earth time. It's also the beginning of the apostleship of the apostle Paul. Up to this time, he had been called to be an apostle, but he had never acted that way. That wasn't his, his, his uh, what he was doing on, on a regular basis. But 12 years later, we read here, he finally begins this ministry that God had called him to. And this section is also a place where we have the most important thing that we need to know in our business as the church, and that's how this Holy Spirit can lead God's people. We read the opening words of Acts chapter 13 in the context of Acts 12, where we read, in, if you remember, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was being proclaimed and many were coming to faith in Jesus in Judea. And in Acts 12, Luke tells us at the end that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. 
Now we start Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, a long friend, excuse me, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now this scene from chapter 12 to 13 shifts back to Antioch where we read that the Holy Spirit prompted leaders in the church in Antioch to ordain Barnabas and Paul to the calling of filling the third phase of the Great Commission. This is the same process in many ways that the church recognizes today in the body of Christ when they see people within their uh, congregations are being set aside for God, particularly that's open to us as things like pastors and missionaries and chaplains and spiritual leaders. While some of these recognition and, and comes through qualifications and uh, character qualities recorded in the Bible, what we read here is the first and foremost recognition of that calling is the work of the Holy Spirit in that person revealed in the church. This is, an important, this is a, an important point because we don't have the thoughts of God and we need the Holy Spirit to reveal to us who is being called and who is not. We've seen the need for this in the previous chapters as there was a lot of warnings about false teachers in the church. But what we see here is that when the Holy Spirit revealed his call to Barnabas and Saul, to the church leaders, they recognized that call. And they recognized that not only by the Spirit, but by fasting and praying and ultimately ordaining Barnabas and Saul to go out to the ends of the earth with the gospel. The key here is that the church leaders recognized that moving of the Holy Spirit and responded accordingly. Verses 4 and 5. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, from where they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So Luke tells us here that Barnabas and Saul's journey began as they traveled down to Seleucia. It's a Syrian seaport from which they sailed go from there from to Salamis, which is on the southeastern side of Cyprus. We know that the gospel had already reached Cyprus because in former chapters it was people from Cyprus that came to Antioch to proclaim the gospel there. There's some speculation about why they came there. Uh, ultimately, I would say the Bible tells us that Barnabas was from Cyprus so he's going to go to his hometown first and start to share the gospel. Whatever the reason is, the first place they went to were to the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues. Paul com comments in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul took those words to heart 
wherever he went, he always would go to a Jewish, Jewish synagogue first so that they might have the first opportunity to know Jesus. It's significant that here in verse 5, Luke tells us that Barnabas' cousin, whose name was John Mark, who had come up from Jerusalem with them, and when they returned to Antioch, was also going to be a helper on this mission trip. It's significant to point out because there's nothing to indicate that the Holy Spirit set John Mark aside to be part of that ministry. Barnabas and Saul are specifically mentioned in verse 2, but John Mark is not. Well, there could be a number of reasons. They wanted to take him with him, uh, but it didn't really matter. He went with them, which had some repercussions later on. Acts chapter 6, excuse me, Acts verse 6 here. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here we read that Barnabas and Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ in Salamis, and they continued their journey to Paphos, which is the capital city of Cyprus. When they got there, they ran into a magician who was a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. Another name for him was Elimas, which means magician. Quite Quite the different things going on here. Luke tells us that the proconsul that was with him was a man of intelligence, and so he summoned Barnabas and Paul, wanting to hear the word of God. But Elimas, Bar-Jesus, the false prophet magician, (laughs) opposed him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from knowing Jesus Christ. But Paul, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, confronted Elimas' opposition. He first revealed the character of Elimas, that of being of deceit, villainy, and a son of the devil. Now, the, the, uh, the word deceit here in the Greek literally means something that is a snare which appears safe and inviting, but is really a trap. The word villainy here in the original Greek means reckless, unscrupulous wickedness. And son of the devil, you probably all know what that would be, but <laughs> it's a, it's interesting that he called him son of the devil and he, one of his names was Bar-Jesus. So 
kind of cutting that out of him too. Um, Elimas' actions in making crooked the straight paths of the Lord rose out of that uh, devil-like character. So Saul takes action in this and he makes Bar-Jesus' physical condition match his spiritual condition of blindness. There's something here for us to learn. Brothers and sisters, we live in an age, we live in a country, we live in a culture that highly values tolerance and unconditional acceptance as being of the highest virtues, and they are not. There is absolutely nothing wrong with exposing the true character of those who are false and who oppose the truth. As a result of Paul's exposure of Elimas being a villain and deceiver, a deceiver we read that the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, and he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What this means is if we expose things that are not true, people will come to faith. Historical records actually back up this story. A British scholar named William Ramsey argues from different literary sources that Sergia Paula was a proconsul's daughter who was a citizen of Antioch, was a Christian, and so was her son. She was one of the first citizens to be on the Roman Senate. So from this, uh, uh, this particular action, ultimately a Christian became on the secular Roman political realm. When we proclaim the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we always engage the enemy of our souls in spiritual combat. When we do the Lord's work, we should expect to be and be prepared for a satanic opposition, which is done, of course, through people. Sharing the good news of the gospel with someone involves more than just giving a sales pitch or using logical arguments because we are engaging in a battle with Satan himself who wants to keep people in the darkness. So the Holy Spirit, here we see, sent Barnabas and Saul directly into spiritual conflict. We see this in the ministry of Jesus in Luke 4. His very first ministry was to go out into the devil, desert with the devil. Verse 13 we read, And now Paul and his companions set sail for Patphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So after confronting and winning the battle of spiritual oppression against the glorious gospel of God's grace, Paul and Barnabas and John, Mark, traveled to Perga in Pamphylia, which is along the coast of Turkey. It's here John Mark leaves them for some unstated reasons and returns to Jerusalem. But it is here where we see the battle of the enemy also in opposition to the gospel. Opposition isn't just limited to people we think are enemies. They are people very close to us at times. Mark leaves for unstated reasons. Spiritual warfare against the praise of the glory of God's grace can occur in anyone if our hearts are open to it. Don't, don't forget Jesus said, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come with a sword. 
We do not know why Mark left Paul and Barnabas, but from the argument that occurs between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark in Acts 15, we know that his departure did not meet Paul's approval. Remember that there's no indication that the Holy Spirit had set Mark, John Mark aside too. Though there could have been many different reasons to take him along, the reality is that the Holy Spirit stepped in at that moment because for sure John Mark would have been a detriment to that ministry. The good news about John Mark is though he might have failed here, he did over time mature and became an effective servant of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul tells Timothy to bring Mark with him because, quote, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tradition states, tells us that John Mark eventually helped write the gospel of Mark for Peter. In the kingdom of God, failure in attempt does not qualify. Excuse me, does not disqualify. God is in the business of redeeming us and equipping us to proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. Verse 14 we read, But they went from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. These verses tell us what happens after Mark leaves and Paul and Barnabas leave Perga and go to the Pisidian Antioch. Uh, we've heard a lot of different Antiochs already. This is one just, there's a city of city and they, there's, a, there's an area of uh, Pisidian. They're all over the place. There's had like 11 Antiochs. So I'm not going to straighten them out for you right now because <laughs> I don't even remember. On the Sabbath day they arrived and Paul followed his formal, his normal practice of going to a synagogue to share the gospel. According to Jewish custom, a visiting Jew, especially a teacher, would be invited to speak. Um, they put that honor towards Paul and Barnabas. Paul agrees to do so. And so he preaches a sermon that contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that would affect the Jews. So I'll read through the sermon without stopping. So Paul stood up and motioning his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised him, 
raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals on whose feet I am unworthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from a tree and laid him, laid him in a tomb. <clears throat> but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the, the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I give you the holy and bless, sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so here Paul, in preaching the gospel to an audience of Jews, laid before them all of the truths that would be the basis for the hope of forgiveness of sin for the Jews. They would have understood all of these little these, uh, nuances here that um, Paul is preaching to them. They, they were told they could not be freed from sin by keeping the law of Moses, but they could be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all the prophecies of the word of God. Paul then concludes this sermon with a warning in verses 40 and 41. Beware, he says, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and per perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Now, this is not the way most contemporary pastors and evangelists end their sermons is by 
offending them by warning them. But Paul almost always did it this way. Paul's concern was that his listeners would not fear God enough to heed his message. Paul was more concerned about the eternal destiny of those who heard him rather than gaining a large audience. And we should be doing the same. Amen. There wasn't a big amen, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, verse 42. And they, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So we see here that the, the initial reaction to Paul's sermon and his warning was, was so positive that the people begged to hear it again the next week. And some are so encouraged here, it says that they, they followed him and said that we still want to learn even more. But by now we should understand that whenever we stand for Christ, and whenever we share the gospel, there will be opposition, which we see starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Here we see one of the, the marks of true evangelism is the issue of people who hear it become divided. They're either for it or against it. There's no neutrality when it comes to the gospel. You would think, though, everyone would like this good news. But the fact is, many hate the good news. Why would they hate the good news? Why would the good news divide people? Because the glorious gospel of God's grace is the good news of God, not the good news of man. Luke emphasizes this. He refers twice to the word of God in verses 44 46, and he will refer twice to the word of the Lord in verses 48 and 49. In other words, the gospel did not originate by religious, clever men thinking of a way they can be reconciled to God. All of the world's religions, brothers and sisters, originate with either man or Satan and they involve a system of human works for salvation. They affirm, they affirm the autonomy of humanity to bring glory to themselves by earning their way to heaven. The grace of God is different. Our gospel is different. Anything that has to be done, everything that has to be done, has been done on Jesus, in Jesus Christ, who came to earth to go on a cross and die for our sins in our place so that we might have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. 
We are saved only by the grace of God. We were chosen before the foundation of the world, before we did anything. While divisive, that is really, really good news. Amen? And when the Gentiles heard this, we read in verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Luke's words here indicate that Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch for, for probably an extended time, probably a number of weeks during which the gospel just continued to spread and spread. We would call it today, we'd call it revival. This is, this is the wondrous power of the word of God. This is the, the glorious gospel of God's grace in Christ which, which relieves the heavy burden and weight of human guilt was changing hearts constantly changing hearts. But many of the Jews were disturbed by this and they, they could not prevail openly so they went around behind the scenes and, and stirred up people of high standing, ultimately having the Roman authorities drive them out of the district. But to me, the, the last verse is the best verse, the most beautiful verse. The disciples who remained were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, these are the ones that remained, so they are under persecution. They're being opposed, like, all the time. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's no mention of, of tongues here uh, with this filling of the Holy Spirit, but there is a mention of the fruit of the Spirit. They were filled with joy, filled with love, all those things that are the fruits of the Spirit. This is the great sign of the Spirit of God in the human heart. It floods the heart with, with love and joy. And if we're truly Christians in our hearts, our hearts cannot but be moved by the grace of God in that way. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is an example of response that it's important for us to follow. It's quite common to have conflict and opposition and even persecution of some sort arise during when things are going best. It seems like when everything's going good, all of a sudden they go sideways. Paul and Barnabas saw multitudes of people come to Christ. In the midst of it, all sorts of opposition. But they had reason to be filled with joy. They're also filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of conflict, opposition, and persecution. And we, we see these things in, in churches. We, we've seen it here. We'll see it some more. Every time we step forward for God, there'll always be an opposition, sometimes overt, sometimes covert. It's always there. And when these things happen, the church begins to lose its understanding of what the business, the main business is. Because the first thing we use, we lose when we fall into this is we lose our joy. But in our text, 
we read that in the midst of conflict, opposition, and persecution, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So God is telling us here today that it is our relationship with Jesus Christ, not our circumstances, that should determine our attitudes and our emotions and our lives. If our attitudes about the main business of the church are right, then everything else will be right too. The main business of the church is to obey the calling of the Holy Spirit by promoting the glory of God, by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ out in our community, out among the nations, filled with joy, filled with the Holy Spirit. At such times, we need to remember the words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10 where he writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Brothers and sisters, may our weapons of warfare against conflict, opposition, and persecution be the filling of joy in the filling of the Spirit in the midst of all the struggles of life. Amen? As in the words of Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And all God's people said, Amen. For this, this long text, kind of deep text, kind of unnerving in a lot of ways. But thank you, Lord, that, that when things seem to be going wrong, sideways and everything else, we know there's a, there's a real battle behind everything. And we know, Lord, it's from the darkness. It's from the, from the evil one. And so help us, Lord, to, to have hearts that are full of joy. Help, help us, Lord, to, to pursue um, not peace for the avenue of peace, but peace in the way that you have defined it on the cross for us. So, Lord, as we, we move ahead and continue, Lord, to try to reach people for you, we pray in the midst of it that you would continue to protect us, but even more, fill us with yourself. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen.